neurons and neuronal connections. There's about 85 billion neurons in the human brain, each capable of up to 10,000 connections with other neurons. Every time you learn something new, you're making a new connection or connections. Our brains are configured in such a way that learning, storage, and retrieval of information is flexible and plastic, so that when you learn information, the more richly you connect it to previously learned information, and the more broadly you categorize that learned information, the more easily you can retrieve it when you need to make a new connection. Every time you figure out something new, you're likely making hundreds, perhaps thousands of new neuronal connections. And our human ability to learn and retain information in a flexible system of storage and retrieval is a big part of what makes us creative. We all have this ability and the way it's set up around our brain is it's our brains are literally wired to be creative that was shelly carson and this is the natural born thinkers podcast Hello and welcome to Natural Born Thinkers, a podcast designed to help you think differently and live a more creative lifestyle. My name is Sam Hunter and my job is to help people tap into their creative potential to solve their biggest individual and business challenges. I set up this podcast to reveal the secret source behind a creative thinking process and to provide a perspective on how we can live a life that enables us to more confidently draw upon our natural creativity. I believe that our minds are all uniquely wired to think differently and that the world depends on our diverse creative potential. Today's guest is Shelley Carson, psychologist and lecturer at Harvard University and author of one of my absolute favorite books, Your Creative Brain, Seven Steps to Maximize Imagination, Productivity and Innovation in Your Life. I feel so honoured that Shelley agreed to do this podcast as her book is one of the only books I have read that has literally had a life-changing impact. Shelley's research centres around creativity and specifically our creative brains. Her book outlines the key network, processes and geography of the brain that are involved in creative thinking and also reveals seven key brain sets, ways of thinking that we can engage to think creatively. When I took the supporting brain set test that Shelley developed as part of her book, I came to understand my creative comfort zone, my brain's preferred way of having ideas. This meant the world to me as I felt as though I had unlocked a superpower that I knew how to refuel and practice again and again and again. But even more critically than that, what Shelley's book exposes is that we are all wired to think differently. Each of us is blessed with a unique neural network that positions us to contribute creative ideas that no one else can. In this podcast, Shelley and I explore the creative brain and scientifically highlight the brain's natural capability to create. Shelley reveals how limiting beliefs about our own creativity can suppress our nascent creative potential and shares how our experiences or even societal norms might have shaped our beliefs. 
While Shelley's recent research shows that some of us might be more genetically prone to creativity, Shelley also highlights activities that anyone can practice pretty much anywhere to enhance their creative thinking potential. Basically, by the end of this podcast, we have argued every angle to prove that you have a creative brain. The intent of this podcast is to open your eyes to your inner creative and inspire you to use it. And if you are in any doubt as to why you might want to do this, Shelley shares that embracing our creativity positions us to live a more happy, hopeful and fulfilling life. Hello, Shelley. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's it's funny because I... I moved to the United States in 2012, and one of the highlights of my first year in America was discovering your book, which had been written two years prior, called Your Creative Brain. And it was literally a game changer for me and totally changed my approach to creativity as an individual because I'm someone who a lot of people describe as highly creative, but no one can put their finger on it or understand where it all comes from. However, after reading your book, I totally understood where it comes from and my creative mindset, which allowed me to help people understand why they thought I was a walking, talking metaphor machine. So I'm I'm grateful to you on, on many levels. One, for helping me understand myself and, and two, for, for joining the podcast today to help share your knowledge and your research about creativity and the brain on our call today. Well, thank you so much. And I'm glad that you understand it so well, because I'm not sure I do. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's certainly a work in progress trying to understand the creative brain. I, I think... I think for creativity often has a little bit of magic to it, doesn't it? The aha moment is never, and I wonder, do we always want to understand everything about how that came to be? But knowing a lot of how you can enable those, I think is something that is amazing and very useful in today's environment. Well, I agree with that. And you know, it's funny when when I work with artists, and especially when I start talking about neuroscience in the brain, they always put their hands up and say, no, 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 I don't want to know about this. It's going to take the magic away. But I really agree with Carl Sagan when he says, the more you know about the universe and the more you know about how it works, the more magic it becomes. And I really feel that way about our creative brains. The more we understand how magical they are and, and the way they work, the, the more in awe of it you are. I, I really I really agree with that just from my personal journey since having read your book. And obviously, you're a Harvard-based uh, neuroscientist and psychologist. So um, you're researching uh, this area and have written multiple papers, books, and also a wonderful blog, uh, which I, I researched in, in coming into uh, today's conversation. So that being said, I guess the first question to level set everybody on the call today is, what is creativity? Can you share your definition of what it is? Well, yes, I'll be happy to do that. And it's it's interesting because there are so many elegant definitions of creativity and perhaps as many definitions as there are people who write about the topic. And before I share 
my definition or the so-called scientific definition. One of my favorite definitions is from Michael Page, who wrote a book about on visualization in 1990. And he said, creativity is the ability to bring into being or form out of nothing, to bring into being by force of imagination. And I think it's so wonderful to think that so much of what we see around us, from the clothes that we're wearing, to the buildings we reside in, to the device that you are listening to this podcast on, those of you out there, really would not be there but for the power of human creativity and imagination. Each semester when I begin my creativity course, I always ask students to write down their definition of creativity. And here's one of my favorite student definitions. Creativity is the ability to capitalize on failure. Creative individuals know that failure is part of the creativity process and they don't view it as a negative, but as an opportunity to learn and expand their knowledge of what's possible. However, if we're going to study something scientifically, we do need to have a definition that's accepted by most scientists in the field. And here's what most of us agree on. In order to be considered creative, an idea or product must exhibit two factors. First, it has to be original or novel, the... And secondly, it must be useful or adaptive in some way. So our working definition of creativity is this. Creativity is the ability to combine diverse elements or bits of information to form novel or original ideas or products that are in some way adaptive. And I have to say that many times people who are in my workshops will say to me, I'm just not creative. I can't even draw a stick figure. And there are two things that are happening here. First, many people simply associated creativity with the arts. But from our definition, you can see that creativity can be applied to virtually any aspect of human endeavor, from the arts to science, to business, to problems with everyday living. And second, people often conflate creativity with talent. Talent is technical skill or aptitude in a specific domain of endeavor, like having perfect pitch in music or being able to draw with great perspective from an early age. It's often identifiable early in life. So talent is separate from creativity. Many people can exhibit talent, but not much creativity and vice versa. And an example of that I might suggest is Steve Jobs. He was enormously creative, but not as talented in the field of computer technology as his partner, Steve Wozniak. That's really fascinating because there's, I think, <laughs> to your point, a lot of people, when you say, are you creative? They, they, they lean towards what they can't do. There's never this lean towards what I can do. And you talked about conflating from that perspective. But there's also, I think, sometimes inflating of creativity because everybody seems to make, oh, well, a lot of people often will make a comment that 
creativity is inventing something like what Steve Jobs did or the Facebook or uh, coming up with a piece of art that people go and visit and in exhibits. There's never any appreciation for the daily creativity that happens, perhaps sometimes unaware to us even in the moment. So there seems to be perhaps a, a spectrum of little c creativity, the everyday developments and big C. Yeah, exactly. So we make that distinction in the field between big C and little c. Little c creativity, as you said, is the everyday garden variety of creativity. And we as humans commit acts of little c creativity hundreds of times a day. For example, if you think about it, things like planning a vacation or comforting a child whose feelings have been hurt or arranging flowers in a vase or planning a garden or arranging your living room furniture. All of these things are creative. Every time you use an everyday item for a purpose other than it was intended for, like using a box as a doorstop, these are acts of little c creativity, whereas big C creativity, like Steve Jobs inventing a personal computer or domain changing work like Einstein's theory of relativity or Newton's theory of gravity or Beethoven's symphonies, these creative acts substantially change their domains. And there is a question, is it the same process as little c creativity on a bigger scale, or is it qualitatively different? And this is an exciting question that we still pursue, but still the definition of creativity holds. It's the ability to combine elements, diverse elements, or bits of information to form novel or original ideas or products that are in some way adaptive. Got it. And you mentioned that when people start talking about creativity, they make an association with the arts. And there's a, and then there you've just mentioned Einstein and put it into the scientific field, which is a conversation I had on a, another podcast with Dr. Palm Birber here, who is a neuroscientist, but in a different field. And through that, she, we discussed that actually science is creativity because it's a journey of, of discovery, of to, to go back to your definition about imagination and finding something that's not there before and, and being able to, to just make that visualization or that discovery. Absolutely. Science is creativity. Um, as I say, so many of our problems that we solve in everyday living are creative. There's creativity in business, creativity in sports, uh, virtually every time we have a problem that there's no direct pathway to the answer, we have to use creativity to solve it. In your book, you cite the, the very famous scientific discovery of Archimedes um, when he ends up um, discovering displacement and running naked through the streets. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I don't know, like... I. I haven't. I'm not sure. I've had an idea yet in my life that makes me want to go and do that. Um, but I look forward to the day. <laughs> but you, you yourself had a, a an aha moment in, I think, in a science class. Was it that led you into this journey of creative neuroscience? Can you share a little bit about that? 
I will share that. And I would just like to say that one of the things, uh, one of my favorite quotes uh, from about creativity was from Franklin Delano Roosevelt's first inaugural address where he says happiness lies not in the acquisition of money, but one of the things that is, brings us most happiness is in the thrill of creative effort. And I will say that creative effort does bring us happiness and it is thrilling. And I'm sure as a creative person yourself, you've experienced this. Maybe it doesn't make you want to run naked through the streets. <laughs> um, that's true. But it is an uplifting experience. And hopefully we can talk more about this later, the emotional experience of being creative, because it's, it is a very positive thing. And there's more and more research today that is indicating that engaging in creative work and creative activity is stress reducing and really emotionally uplifting. So yes, as you were saying, when what really brought me into this field was when I was a graduate student in my doctoral program at Harvard many years ago in Professor William Milberg's neuroanatomy class. And I want to give a shout out to Professor Milberg of the Harvard Medical School, who still teaches this course, by the way, and also does great research at the VA Medical Center in Boston. But in this class, he handed me, of course, I was wearing gloves, an entire intact human brain. And this was really a powerful moment for me as I realized that what I was holding was, in essence, an individual's universe. The sum of one man's knowledge, and we knew it was a male brain, that person's dreams, his memories, all the songs he had ever learned, all his fears and hopes for the future, were enshrined right within this three-pound organ I was holding. And I mean, for a moment, I actually felt overcome by this realization. Or maybe it was formalin fumes, but then I thought about this and all the great works of literature and art and the concepts for skyscrapers and rockets to the moon and beyond and technology and medical advances, all are conceived in a human brain like the one I was holding. How amazing and creative this human brain of ours is. How can it do all this? And it was suddenly very clear to me that I wanted to attempt to answer this question, that this would be a driving force in my professional life. And here I am in 2021, having had the privilege of interacting with so many creative brains of unique individuals who've taken part in my studies and enrolled in my creativity courses and consulted with me to help them in their creative professions. And I must say, invited me to speak with them on their podcast. So thank you for that. For me, it all began by holding a human brain and realizing its possibilities. I, I love your description of it, actually, because I, 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 I imagine there are a lot of people who are listening to this who have never held a human brain. And perhaps for some, the idea of 
physically getting your hands on that organ or any organ, to be honest, might be quite a freaky idea or, or something that people get stuck with the biology of it before they can move on to the impact it had for you, which is the idea of the wonder and the magic that the human mind can create and the idea of holding someone's dreams and in, in your hand is just hugely awe-inspiring and you can see how an inspiration like that could lead into wanting to unpack <laughs> what's it inside you talked about that with the definition of creativity as the ability to make connections and associations between content information that a, a dynamic combination essentially that's never been formed before and how how does the brain go about that there must be a main system or something that allows us to make those combinations and allows us to have those dreams well right it's and it's a very very complex system so um, it's it's really not something that we can talk too much about in our short period of time together but of course it's neurons and neuronal connections there's about 85 billion neurons in the human brain each capable of up to 10,000 connections with other neurons. Every time you learn something new, you're making a new connection or connections. Our brains are configured in such a way that learning, storage, and retrieval of information is flexible and plastic so that when you learn information, the more richly you connect it to previously learned information, and the more broadly you categorize that learned information, the more easily you can retrieve it when you need to make a new connection. Every time you figure out something new, you're likely making hundreds, perhaps thousands of new neuronal connections. And our human ability to learn and retain information in a flexible system of storage and retrieval is a big part of what makes us creative. We all have this ability. And the way it's set up around our brain is it, it's our brains are literally wired to be creative. That is going to be a, a major breakthrough moment for folk who, particularly those people who say, I'm not creative or have that belief set they're not creative because from what you shared there, it would appear that the the anatomy of the human brain, if you're blessed to have been born with everything the human body was designed to to have, you if you have a fully functioning brain, there's absolutely zero reason why you couldn't develop creative aptitudes. That's true. I mean, each of us possesses a literal creativity machine capable of multiple unique creative ideas. We each have our own unique repository of experiences, memories, skills, and knowledge, and no other human on the earth has the same configuration of these qualities that you have or that any one of your listeners has. This allows you the ability to combine these bits of information along with whatever information that you're being, that you're retrieving at any given moment in time from the external environment to form novel ideas or products. 
In fact, each day you have many creative ideas, but you probably don't label them as such. So let me just give you a couple of examples. Whenever you have a conversation with another person, you're engaging in a creative act. You're using bits of information, which are words, and combining them in novel and original ways to do something useful, which is in part information. We do this with our own thoughts, with our, in our own brains as well. Many of us think in words, and when we're problem solving or figuring something out for ourselves, whether we do that with words or mental images, we're using our creativity and having creative ideas. Imagining what you'll fix for dinner or what you'll go out and get for dinner, for that matter, or what outfit you're going to put on or put together, or how you'll organize your day. These are all creative ideas. They're maybe little c creative ideas. If you can do these, then you can build bigger creative ideas and bigger creative ideas. Your brain is built for this. You're ready to go. Well, I don't. I am not a mathematician, um, and I'm not sure I could do 85 billion times 10,000 in in terms of the potential connections that your mind can make and and remake again. Basically, it sounds as though the opportunity to do that physically in terms of the connections your mind can make is infinite. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really just takes practice to. Think of yourself as thinking creatively. So if, when you realize, hey, I'm thinking creatively and just training your mind to do that and realize that you're doing it is is really a big step toward being more creative. Well, I think this first insight will debunk a lot of people's belief sets that they're not creative because that it's a belief set. It's not a biological uh, fact. And... Okay, if we convince people on that that one, the next myth that people might hang on to is that, yeah, but it's proven that I'm a much more left brain hemisphere led person than right brain with right brain being more focused on the activities the mind conducts to enable creative thought. So in your in your book you highlight uh, the geography of the mind so I, I guess if the neural network is the system of the mind do you cite the the geography in terms of the key lobes and centers that the brain has so can you share a little bit about this geography and specifically the creative hotspots that the mind has Yes, so I'll talk a, a little bit about some of the hotspots. But of course, in order to do this, um, you're going to need to use your creative brain to imagine a schematic of a creative brain. Okay, so everybody try to imagine your brain. And also keep in mind that this is a very coarse description. And when I talk about hotspots for creativity in the brain, also keep in mind that even though we're talking about specific hotspots, the brain works in terms of networks that are kind of located around the brain and are connected with each other. So there may be a hotspot that's sort of like a central lobe for a network, 
but most parts of the brain don't work alone. They work in tandem with other parts of the brain. So the first thing that I want to talk about is the prefrontal cortex. And this is where a lot of the action occurs. On the sides of the brain, in the front of the brain, is what we call the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, or the DLPFC. And this is the part of the brain that's kind of the seat of what we call the executive control network. I like to refer to this as the CEO of the brain because it appears to be the main control center where most information processing eventually comes together. Now that, okay, so think of that as the CEO. Now move toward the center line of the front of the brain, and there you'll have what I refer to as the me center of the brain, me, M-E. This is the medial prefrontal cortex, or the MPFC, and among its many jobs is our concept of ourself, or our ability, and as well as our ability to understand that other people have different views other than our own view, and also that other people may see us differently than we see ourselves. So there's some conscious, self-conscious social processing going on in this area. This is part of a network that we call the default mode network that kind of involves the center line parts of the brain that stretch all the way from the front of the brain clear to the back of the brain. Default mode network. I'll talk a little bit more about that um, in a little while. People often call the default network is also where your daydream might happen. Is that correct? That's right. So the default mode network kind of works inversely to the executive control network. Now, generally, what we find is that when the executive control network is turned on and you're consciously, deliberately thinking about things and planning things, executive control, most of you know that the executive functions of the brain include planning for the future, um, making decisions, making conscious, deliberate decisions, and that kind of thing. And when you're not involved in deliberate thinking, when that part of your brain kind of turns off, the default mold network comes online and turns on. And it's kind of like, oh, idle, daydreaming. Um, you're not really focusing or deliberately thinking about anything. It's just kind of daydreaming. They used to call it the brain at rest, but the brain is never really at rest. No. <laughs> I speak for myself. My mind's certainly never at rest, so I can understand <laughs> why they switched the naming on that. <laughs> okay, so then they're in the very back of the brain. They're in the occipital lobe is where vision is processed. And most auditory or sound processing takes place in the temporal lobes. Then there's an area just above the ears that marks the junction between three lobes of the brain, the temporal, parietal, and occipital lobes, that is a large associational area of the brain 
where a number of different preliminary processes come together. These include sound, vision, and memories, and that forms a more or less complete picture. So for instance, if you were to see somebody walking toward you, a number of stimuli would get processed at lower brain levels and come together here and are matched with previous knowledge so that you would recognize the figure coming at you in the street is your neighbor. These and other associational networks in the brain I call the research and development part of the brain or R&D areas because their job is to bring together information processed at lower levels and match it to some required pattern, whether that required pattern is to identify somebody walking toward you on the street or to find an internally generated solution to a problem as you would when you're thinking creatively. So if I were to put a non-scientific wrapper on it, we have our CEO system. So our executive center where decisions are made, which is at the front of the mind. Then a large area in the middle, which is where essentially if, if the mind were at rest, where uh, uh, things get filtered in and filtered out <laughs> um, in a in a self, I guess, a very uh, subconscious level, and then there's right at the very back the R and D area, which is starting to help make, I guess, even unconscious connections to allow us to make uh, associations, even if it's something as basic as recognizing someone on the street that we've seen before. So the R&D area is very much unconscious. And when it finds a match for a pattern, that match might feed forward into conscious awareness. Got it. So these areas cross both the left and right hemisphere. That's correct, right? That's correct, yes. So yes. really the argument of being left or right-brained when it comes to trying to explain away why you think you're not creative doesn't really stack up because from this perspective, it would appear to be a full brain process. To say that the right brain is creative and the left brain is not, no, that isn't, that's way oversimplifying. It's more of a, um, both, both sides of the brain are absolutely needed for creative work. Okay, great. So at this point, listeners should now be starting to uh, recognize that while they might not believe they are creative, they are being creative in many little C ways on a daily basis, and they have the potential to, to grow that from there. And this is now where we've, we've talked about the, the system in terms of the neural landscape and the connections that the brain makes between what it knows, what it believes, what it remembers. And then now the geography and how the different regions of the brain speak to each other. And I guess this leads us to the next piece, which is the process. So the actual process the mind uses to have an idea. And I think... In your research, you identified that there are two pathways, two major processes in which the mind goes about having an idea. Can you provide an overview of these pathways and 
what is the difference between the two? Right. So I talk about a deliberate pathway and a spontaneous pathway. And I'm not the first person to talk about these specific pathways. Um, Arnie Dietrich, who is a neuroscientist from the University of Beirut, also discussed these pathways uh, a decade before I actually started discussing them. The deliberate pathway is usually associated with purposeful problem solving, retrieving knowledge, and making plans. Attention is highly focused during this form of deliberate processing, and you usually use only one process thought at a time. So you're thinking one thought at a time, and thoughts will process and piggyback on each other one after another. There are many situations in which you'll come up with novel and useful ideas by conscious deliberation and step-by-step thought. You typically consciously walk toward a creative solution step-by-step when you're using the deliberate pathway. As you approach creative insight, When you're using this type of thinking, you feel as though you're getting closer and closer to a solution. The executive pathway in the brain remains steadfastly in control of the creative process when you're using this pathway. And an example of this might be the way that Thomas Edison deliberately improved the electric light bulb and found a filament that would make the electric light bulb work. So I'm sure most of your listeners are aware of his quote, depending on where you find the quote, because he used it several times. Now I know 10,000 ways or I know 3,000 ways not to make an electric light bulb. <laughs> well, I don't, this is a terrible comparison, but I'm just thinking about how that relates, you know, when I might have used that. And we bought my son a marble run at the weekend. And there was definitely a lot of conscious brain thinking in terms of just what goes where, how do I keep on progressing to make this marble run down in, run down the design that is in front of us. <laughs> so yes, and that's Not a wonderful life-changing. example. <laughs> Maybe a for my son. Example. <laughs> okay, now we can t- contrast that to the spontaneous pathway, which is more or less an undirected thinking pathway where performance is Um, more or less automatic or occurs during daydreaming that doesn't take up too much focused attention. The spontaneous pathway is important to imagination or envisioning the future. Spontaneous thoughts seem to appear or originate below the level of conscious awareness where processing is occurring in parallel, meaning that multiple different pathways can be explored at the same time below the level of conscious awareness and um, a wider database can be processed at the same time. 
the executive network of the brain is turned down during this process, either purposely or due to fatigue, and relinquishes some control of the contents of conscious thought. Spontaneous processes allow more integration from um, the non-dominant hemisphere of the brain, which we talked a little bit about already. And as you go down this pathway, there really isn't a sense of feeling that you're getting closer to a potential solution. Instead, you feel like you're kind of wandering through the woods until voila, the trees part before you to reveal some creative insight in all its glory. A creative idea may just suddenly spring into consciousness when you're least expecting it. It's sort of like that aha experience that we've all felt. And that's sort of central to the spontaneous pathway of creative ideas. So that's sort of the difference between the spontaneous and deliberate pathways. A lot of the spontaneous pathway occurs below the level of conscious awareness and then kind of springs into consciousness. And what's going on here, again, is that that pattern matching part of the research and development part of the brain is looking for a match to whatever creative problem you've sent back to it. And it's sorting through um, information that's stored in your unique repository for some combination or idea fragment that might be a match for what you're looking for. And when it finds something, more or less, it will send it, if it matches criteria, it will send it into conscious awareness. And um, Kunios and Beeman did a really interesting research experiment using EEG in 2004, and what they found was that about 30,000 milliseconds before people reported having an insight experience, there was this burst of gamma activity in the temporal lobe of the right of the right temporal lobe, and they interpreted that as information feeding into conscious awareness which I thought was really exciting. Yeah, no, it's amazing that that like using the Edison like relation here is like they literally could see the light bulb go off, which is often the visual that's used when someone has that aha moment in, in the mind. And, you know, I think it's like in terms of the work that I do or just thinking into the corporate world, often if there is a problem or people come to a problem-solving session, they allocate an amount of time to have the conversation, so maybe half a day or a day. And that's just the reality of people's schedules, which essentially means that you're leading a lot with the conscious process, the conscious pathway for problem-solving, because there's a lot of intent focus. Yes, you can trick people to shut down the executive center a little bit more with different techniques to activate more of the spontaneous. But I look at my own approach to my own creative problems, for example, writing children's stories. A lot of my ideas will happen and occur to me when I am nowhere near my desk, maybe 
the next day, maybe three days later. So there seems to be perhaps a time and place for each different pathway. And if you can create the space and time to allow yourself to, I guess, walk away, (laughs) do something else for a bit to allow the aha moment to come to you naturally, there definitely could be some benefit in that. Yes, definitely. And um, if we talk a little bit about the creative process, so the creative process does allow for an incubation period. And most everyone who's highly creative discusses that an incubation period is beneficial. And that's when this is all percolating below the level of conscious awareness. There are certain ways, and then how do you get it? The trick is how do you get it to make its way into conscious awareness? And perhaps we can talk a little bit about that um, when we talk about different brain sets. But I think that's a really good segue which into the next piece, which is the creative brain sets. So now we know the system of our brain, the geography of our brain, and the pathways that our brain can access to allow us to have ideas. And and here is one of my most favorite parts about the book, which is your creates model, which highlights the fact that as an individual, uh, there are different brain sets that we can adopt, different ways of using our brain to have an idea. And there is a test to help you identify your comfort zone. Can you provide an overview of the CREATES model and highlight those seven different types, those seven different brain sets that people can activate for creative thought? Sure. So when I first developed the CREATES brain set model, it was basically to make sense of the prevailing and I must say, conflicting neuroscience research around creativity at that time, which was in 2010. Each lab was publishing conflicting brain imaging results about what was lighting up in the brain during creativity. And my work suggested that each lab was looking at a different aspect of creative ideation and using different creativity measurements. So the CREATES brain set model tries to clarify this. Brain sets are the biological equivalent of mindsets. You know how when you are in a different mindset, um, each mindset that you're in just helps you to focus on different ways of perceiving, interpreting, and remembering things. And it's the same thing with brain sets. It's a biological brain activation set, set state that affects the way we perceive, interpret, and remember stimuli, and also it affects how we go about solving problems. So the seven activation states or brain sets that I identify in the CREATES brain set model are all important to creativity, and there are others, no doubt, that are important to creativity that can also be added but um, and will be added as we go along, but here's a brief rundown of each of the brain sets. And they spell the word create. um, Which is when you knew you were, when you'd struck gold. (laughs) 
<laughs> I had a little help with from my editor coming up with the names to to make that happen, I have to say. But the first one is the Connect Brain Set. And this is the one you said is. So the Connect Brain Set, when you are in the Connect Brain Set, you enter a defocused state of attention that allows you to see connections between objects and concepts that are quite disparate in nature. And you're able to generate multiple solutions to a given problem rather than focusing on a single solution. So you see connections between things. When you're in the reason brain set, you consciously manipulate information in your working memory to solve a problem. This is the state of purposeful planning that comprises much of our daily consciously directed mental activity. So when you say that you're thinking about something, you're generally referring to this brain set. The envision brain set, uh, when you access this, you're visually thinking rather than verbally thinking. And you're able to see and manipulate objects in your mind's eye. You see patterns emerge. In this brain set, you tend to um, be able to see similarities between disparate concepts. This is the brain set of imagination. The absorbed brain set, and this is the one that I tend to um, rely on. When you access the absorbed brain set, you open your mind to new experiences and ideas and uncritically view the world and take in knowledge. It seems like everything fascinates you and attracts your attention. This state is helpful during knowledge gathering and incubation stages of the creative process. And it's very helpful when you are trying to summon the muse. <laughs> the transform brain set. When you are accessing this brain set, you may find yourself in a self-conscious or even distressed state of mind. Um, this could be a state of mind when you feel mildly depressed or anxious. And you can use this state to transform negative energy into works of art and great performances. In this state, you're painfully vulnerable, but you're also motivated to express in creative form that pain and hopes that we all share as part of the human experience. The evaluate brain set is when you consciously judge the value of ideas, concepts, products, behaviors, or individuals. And there's a certain part of the brain in the prefrontal cortex that acts as a critical eye of mental activity. This brain set allows you to evaluate your own creative ideas and products to ensure that they meet your criteria for usefulness and appropriateness. And finally, the stream brain set. 
When you're in this brain set, your thoughts and actions begin to flow in a steady, harmonious sequence, almost like they're orchestrated by outside forces. This brain set is associated with the production of creative material such as improvisation, jazz improvisation, narrative writing as in novels and short stories, sculpting or painting, and the step-by-step revelation of scientific discovery. This state is necessary for the elaboration stage of the creative process. Okay, great. And I think people, as you as you shared your description there, have probably in their mind's eye taken a leap to consider what their comfort zone might be, if you like, because you've developed alongside these different brain sets a, I, I guess, like psychometric tests, a test that allows people to understand themselves and how their brain is most comfortable with operating in the creativity space. And I guess... In terms of, I I imagine you've probably seen some of the data set that comes out of the folk that take these tests. Do you see if there's ever a a brain set that people are more comfortable with than others? Are there more popular brain sets out of the CREATES model? There are more popular ones. So the, the ones that I tend to see the most are the CONNECT, the ABSORB, the REASON, and the envision in that order. Okay. And I think I think the reason that I see those the most is because I do work with creative people. Got it. Because I'm I'm thinking of this, and this is probably a horrible leap of assumption, but I find, I mean, this is actually an interesting question. Do you, would you ever imagine that if someone had a perception of themselves? not being creative or having this belief set that they're not creative, would that limit their ability to access some of those brain sets that are available to them? Yes. So I think that um, people who are people who are highly creative tend to be um, able, people who are highly creative tend to spend more time in the spontaneous brain sets brain states, which tend to be the connect, the absorb, and the envision brain states, and to be able to alternate between states more often. And what I see is that people who think of themselves as less creative are more rigid and less willing to move between brain states. They are afraid to leave their mental comfort zones. Mm. I think that's the the thing with creativity is there's uh, the idea of being, it can lead to a lot of vulnerability because you have to open yourself up to that R&D center at the back of your mind and and you're not necessarily sure what might come out. So I think a, a lot of the time when I'm facilitating creative sessions, I think I experience people's evaluate mindset a lot first <laughs> and then have to break down that barrier of of early perception and early judgment to help them find as you say those more spontaneous ways of using the brain for creativity yes i find that as well 
So people who who consider themselves to be less creative are more likely to score higher on the reason and the evaluate brain states. And part of the reason is that they are uncomfortable with relinquishing control of these conscious-based brain states. The others have more of the spontaneous brain states have more um, people spend more time in an subconscious or unconscious focused brain state. And I think I think it's uncomfortable for people who consider themselves less creative to relinquish that conscious control. And and I think this brings us back to where we wanted to talk a bit more about the conscious, the subconscious and the unconscious. How do you go about activating these different states of consciousness and do the different brain sets allow you to do this? One of the things that I think is interesting is spending more time in the spontaneous brain sets, which we talked about would be connect, envision, and absorb, does allow you more access to the lower subconscious, unconscious levels. One of the ways that Kessler described this in his book, The Act of Creation, which I thought was really interesting, was he described being able to think of yourself as a skin diver back in the old days when they had kind of diving suits with lifelines attached to them, that you could dive below the surface and gather all the wonderful things that exist below the surface, obviously the surface, representing the barrier between conscious and unconscious. So you can see if you're above the surface, then you have access to everything that's conscious. But all of this wonderful material exists below the level of conscious awareness. And what I'm talking about there is your ability to combine and recombine all of this wonderful, unique material that is exclusively yours that you can put together to make creative thoughts. Now, we've talked about the fact that you have some pattern matching going on down there below the level of conscious awareness, but how does it surface? How does it come up to conscious awareness? It has to make its way through filters. And highly creative people have looser filters that allows more idea fragments um, and more partial ideas to come through. People who are less creative have very tight filters. And some of these filters um, may be genetic or some may be um, filters that we have built through societal expectations, our own experience with what's acceptable or plausible, or even shame, um, shame that we've experienced with um, some kind of early experience with creative work. Um, somebody may have told us, hey, you, you don't, don't give up your day job, or um, <laughs> don't, uh, you're not creative, um, don't even try to be creative. So we may have some shame associated with trying to do creative work. It's just safer not to try to do it. 
And so we've got these tight filters that don't allow these ideas to come forward. Well, as the skin diver diving down below and checking out these things and letting things filter through, that's what happens when we're in these spontaneous brain sets. But we can always yank on that lifeline to bring ourselves back up to the uh, surface and then use our reason and our evaluate brain sets to process in reasonable and evaluative ways the goodies, the good stuff that we found, that uh, wonderful um, information that we found when we were down below the surface exploring the subconscious and unconscious material. So that's what creative people are able to do. They're able to go back and forth between these different brain states and use that less accessible material that people who consider themselves to be less creative aren't allowing themselves access to. So what we want to do is loosen ourselves up a little bit. And this is called cognitive disinhibition. I love that. And the analogy that you've used there is like going down and capturing the treasures that lie deep, deep within. And then you have this, this safety line to help bring you back to the surface and make those reason, those reason and evaluated decisions about what you choose to bring out. And I think that's a, an important point, actually, because what I we've we've gone on a journey here to highlight that the human brain has an op- has the potential to think creatively, and would hate people who are more in the comfort zone of evaluate and reason to start using that as a another excuse to say they're not very creative. <laughs> it's just that that's their their preference to help them think in a creative activity. But it also, I think, with these brain sets shows that, yes, it just means that you're not allowing as much to come to the surface, but it doesn't mean that you don't have the capability to do that. Right. Correct. Correct. And so one of the things that I want to do in my book, Your Creative Brain, is to provide exercises for people who maybe don't want to loosen up um, so much to help them to loosen up. And when I say loosen up, I am talking, I'm, I'm saying that literally to loosen the filters of the brain. So that's what I'm talking about. So what might be an activity that if, you know, if I'm someone listening and I've decided without having done the test that I'm definitely an evaluate brain set preference person, um, what are some of the activities that I can do to enhance my cognitive disinhibition? Okay, so the first thing I want to say is to try to convince you, evaluative person, that this is not frivolous. Um, because some of the exercises actually seem almost childish. They will seem like child's play. But I can tell you as somebody who um, spends time working in the field of cognitive neuroscience, the brain, and um, actually working in the field of creativity, that these are not inconsequential exercises that the exercises we talk about doing actually 
physically impact the brain. They can actually change the structure of the brain. Even though it seems like child's play, there's a reason that we talk about the fact that children seem more creative than adults. It's because they have some of these loosened filters. They haven't they haven't devised some of the um, filters, some of the more um, strict filters that we have as adults that keep this information from feeding forward into conscious awareness. And one of the exercises that I would suggest to listeners is what I call the what if exercise. We'll do another, we'll do a connect exercise too, but one of them is called what if. And in this exercise, I recommend that several times a day, you think about what would happen, what would be all the consequences that you could think of if one thing in the world were changed. What if humans had three arms instead of two? Now actually take time to consider what the consequences would be. And what this is doing is it is unleashing your imagination to imagine this. Imagine the consequences to clothing, to physical movement. It would be pretty uncomfortable to sleep in some (laughs) positions. Eating could be, I don't know, but as a mother, I'm imagining what that third hand could help me uh, do when I'm having to carry so many different things. So <laughs> It could be helpful. It could be awkward in some ways. It could be very helpful playing musical instruments. There are a lot of things. Commercially, what would be the advantages of it? There's all kinds of consequences that it could have. So if you would just think about these things, and you can continue, you know, you could write down a bunch of them, or you could just continue to think about it throughout the day. Imagine what would be the consequences if walls could actually talk. Yeah, I think a lot of people would stop talking. (laughs) (laughs) What would be the consequences if grass were red instead of green? Imagine what would be the consequences if cockroaches had a prefrontal cortex, like (laughs) the one we were just talking about. So all you have to do to play this what if game is two or three times a day, take one thing in the environment and change it. And then imagine what the consequences would be. And if you were to do this even once a day, and just let your imagination run wild, What you're doing is you're priming your imagination to think creative thoughts. And as you go forward, this is going to make you a more creative person. Well, and it also sounds a lot of fun. Instead of sitting there on your phone in a train if you're traveling or when you're waiting for something to instead let the mind wander and answer these fanciful concepts instead of like wasting time and energy reading a new story that actually isn't well it might add some knowledge to your mind that you can access later for a creative activity but it you're actually consciously 
starting to rewire your mind to enable you to create. And I mean, I guess even doing this activity, it could be done with friends. I imagine a great activity to do in a long car journey with your children to help them start developing this capability. Exactly. And I think it comes to the point of also, you know, it was actually a lot of fun, even in the very small bit that we had of imagining that these ideas, it it was fun and enlivening. And and you talked right at the get go about the value that can come from living a more creative life. So what is that value? What will people get from putting the effort in to better wire their mind for creativity? Now, it is enriching, it's fun, it's playful. So those are cognitive, psychological benefits that you can get. Obviously, it does help you to become more creative, but it actually does biologically rewire your brain, which I think is is an amazing thing. When we think about the fact that highly creative people do spend more time in these different brain states by imitating the brain states of creative individuals, we can enhance our own creativity. And we know that we can alter our brains and our brain states through practice. And we've seen that through a variety of different modalities. We see it through, for instance, cognitive behavioral therapy research. We've seen it through cognitive enhancement and cognitive rehabilitation research, which has really stepped up due to um, the changes and the advancements we've made since in the United States, especially our military members have returned from Iraq and Afghanistan with mild um, brain injuries, mild traumatic brain injuries. And so we've done a lot of work on cognitive rehabilitation. And we've seen that the brain can rewire itself through practice. And finally, through neurofeedback, we know that we can change our brain activation patterns. So we know this can be done just through practice. And this is what I think is really interesting, because I know that there's a lot of creativity trainings out there where people come in and do one day trainings. But for me, and maybe it's from my yoga training or a time as a professional swimmer, when it, it a practice is a daily activity, if you want to get good at something, you have to do it multiple times a day or put the hours in and invest. Like if you want to lose weight, you have to practice, you have to engage in a lifestyle that allows you to change the shape of your body. And just like that, if you want to change the shape of your mind, if you want to become, fulfill your potential to be more creative, you have to put the work in and practice and develop this lifestyle around it. That's, that's, that's definitely true. And if you are, if you truly do want to become more creative, then there are definite ways to, um, to help yourself to do this. And by engaging in some of these creative practices, and again, what the, the exercise that I mentioned is just one of many. Another one is divergent. There's different, different divergent thinking practices like 
what are the different uses that you can think of for everyday objects? Pick an everyday object around your house. Um, a fork. A newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> a, a shoebox. Anything. And just think of as many uses as you can possibly think of for it. And just, you know, throughout the day, oh, yeah, I thought of something else I could do with a shoebox. This kind of thing is very creative. In fact, alternate uses for everyday items is one of the major tests for creativity. It's called divergent thinking tests. But practicing divergent thinking tasks also increases your creativity. Now, if you really want to do this and, and make it um, a habit, then one of the ways you can do this is simply by giving yourself a little reward every time you do the, the exercise. Um, simple little reward, like a little star sticker. And if you think these things aren't effective, um, actually major corporations use them as incentives, like Weight Watchers uses little stickers. And as soon as you build up enough stickers, you can turn in your stickers for something that's really meaningful or valuable. Like you can reward yourself with something. If you get 20 stickers, you can reward yourself with something that's meaningful to yourself. Maybe you can buy a new golf club or a new pair of shoes, something that is actually meaningful to yourself. But you just build up with these teeny little tokens that's called a token economy. Build up to it and um, you can change the way you think. You can literally change the way you think um, habitually and make yourself think more creatively. And and also it's a, a great, I think, in today's modern age where everything's online and everything's so accessible and you can get what you want from Amazon whenever you may need, actually taking a step back and going back to the days of old where there wasn't an internet and you had pocket money or you had to do chores to earn pocket money, it always is more fulfilling when you've taken the time and the effort to achieve rather than to uh, simply just take when you want to. So I think there's a, a really nice, I think the, the, economy, the token economy is a really nice way to um, also relearn how to wait. Yes. <laughs> and actually, I also read um, one of your blogs that you wrote, which was more geared, I guess, towards the trans transcend mindset, which is probably quite a tricky mindset for people to imagine accessing or, or something that might be you know, if you have had trauma in your life and you have turned that into a creative act, something that you don't necessarily want to visit often. In your blog, you shared that it's um, the not necessarily always in the moment of difficulty that the creativity comes, but can actually come as there's this enlightenment as you emerge from this space of difficulty into a more happy state. And had suggested that people to to mimic that find a way to find more surprise and joy in their everyday to shock them into this space of enlightenment from which to create. Yes, even using your negative energy that can come from a mild state of depression or a mild anxious state, that energy can be transformed into a work of art or some sort of expressive creative form that may be beneficial. 
that it will definitely make you feel better. And who knows, it may actually be something that could help another person who doesn't have your ability to express themselves. It could make them feel better to see, hear, or read what you have created. It may resonate with them. Mm. But And this starts to bring in the concept of emotion, because it's clear from, from this that emotion has a role in the creative process. And for those who, li- who have more artistic professions, where emotion is probably much more freely accepted and something that they'll embrace in their everyday, for people listening to this in more of the corporate world, emotion <laughs> is is a dirty word it's not something people necessarily like to to use because even though we're we're humans for whatever reason a lot of what makes us human is is not necessarily always embraced in a corporate setting <laughs> so you have highlighted in your creative brain that different emotional states can actually be helpful to activating some of the brain sets. Can you share a little bit more about that? Well, in general, creativity is associated with an upward surge in a positive emotional set. That is that research indicates that as positive mood increases, so does creativity and vice versa. As creativity increases, so does positive mood. And we've seen this in so-called normal individuals and individuals with bipolar disorder who are transitioning from a normal mood to a hypomanic mood. And by the way, hypomania is associated with a great deal of creative work historically. However, we've also found that you can use, as I mentioned, um, a mild state of depression or anxiety. You can use that negative psychic energy Um, as fuel for creative work. But let me just say that what you need to understand is that the act of doing creative work tends to increase mood and decrease stress. So that in the corporate world, if you have people who are doing creative work, you're probably going to have a happier workforce because people tend to feel less stressed when they are engaging in creative work. And there's a number of um, mechanisms of action for this. One of them is by doing creative work, there's generally a meaning-making aspect to creativity. Generally, creative work is creating order out of chaos. People find meaning in doing creative work. The second thing is creative work activates the approach mechanisms of the brain. And that is associated again with positive emotions that include joy, excitement, and hope. So all of these things are um, increased when you're engaged in creative work. So you know, putting the, the threads of the story that we have together so far here is that um, your brain is biologically geared towards creative thinking. There are different pathways and different brain sets that you can use to activate your ability to have creative thought. And there are 
activities you can do that literally rewire the way you think to allow you to maximize your potential for creative thought. And if you if you're in any doubt as to why you would want to do any of these things, I think many people would enjoy living a more exciting, happy and hopeful life. <laughs> so <laughs> yes, there are other reasons too. There's some research that indicates that being creative, uh, engaging in creative work and creative activity also makes you more attractive to sexual partners. Another big bonus factor for for, for singletons. <laughs> <laughs> That's because unconsciously, because creativity is associated with adaptability, uh, it seems that we unconsciously see creative people as uh, we see creativity as a fitness indicator. That is somebody who will be able to adapt to the environment. Got it. And um, that brings up a point as well about dexterity of the mind. So obviously we highlighted that there are, you may have a brain set preference and you can develop yourself in areas that you're perhaps weaker and would like to be more advanced. But is, is it true that through your findings that the most creative people are able to switch across that is those correct. mindsets? Yes, yes. So the most creative people, while they do spend more time in the more spontaneous brain states, they are more able to switch flexibly amongst brain states. Because in fact, to complete the creative process, you really need to be able to access all the brain states. And if we were to look at the creative process as a whole, and if I might go through the process very quickly, and this is a process that has been uh, kind of universally accepted, and it includes a preparation phase where people acquire broad knowledge, and then more specific knowledge, depending on the area in which or the domain in which they are going to be working, they find a creative problem that they're going to be working on. They allow it to incubate. They have creative insights. So, so far we have a preparation stage, an incubation stage and an insight stage, then they need to evaluate their solution, their insight or solution. Then after they've done that, they need to elaborate what they've decided on. So say you've, um, say you're writing your children's story and you come up with a fabulous idea for the story. After you've evaluated it, yes, this is a good idea. After all, then you need to elaborate it. That is, you actually need to do the writing. You need to flesh it out. You need to flesh out the plot and the characters. And then you have to implement it. That is, you have to get your idea out there some way so that it's of some usefulness to some portion of the population. And to do all of this, you need to have all of those brain states available to you. 
And and that's what I, we were talking about right at the the top of this call. Is I I for whatever reason I I went into writing another children's book right before our conversation and was very conscious of the different brain sets I was using at each moment. So the only one I didn't use was the transform mindset because the topic was a happy topic. <laughs> um, but I I and I don't know if. if when I was a swimmer, whenever I was told I wasn't working hard enough or something really upset me, I would always turn that negative frustration with whoever had put me down or told me I hadn't done something into a creative spurt to push my body and to achieve something I I hadn't before. So I don't know if that's a transcend mindset in a sporting context, but... A transform. So transforming the negative energy into something positive and creative. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, transform. I don't know why I've said transcend, but maybe it's tran- transcending the challenge and the frustration and turning yes. it into. <laughs> it, will, it could easily have been named the transcend brain state. <laughs> okay. So now all the pieces of the puzzle are coming together. The, if you can achieve dexterity of the mind, if you have every opportunity to really enhance your creativity. And we've done, I hope, have done a good job of sharing here that there's nothing that's stopping you from grabbing onto what's being said here and starting to live a more creative lifestyle. But, you know, I guess the next piece, I'm trying to predict what someone's next excuse might be, which may potentially be my genetics, because you've mentioned it, that there are, some folk who have those more liberal filters, so have more genetic disposition to be cognitively not to have more cognitive disinhibition. And then there are those that have more constricted areas. Can people use genetics as an excuse? That's a great question. Now, when I first started studying creativity, I really believed that There were highly creative people, and then there were the rest of us that just weren't blessed with as much creativity. And one of the interesting things that I studied when I began my quest to understand creativity was why is it that there are so many people that we uh, note that have high levels of creative achievement, but also high levels of struggles with inner demons, in other words, mental illnesses. And it seemed to me that there was some sort of connection between mental illness and high levels of creativity. And I was looking at people like the Vincent Van Goghs and the Sylvia Plaths, and more recently, Robin Williams and people like this. And it just seemed like there was a lot of highly creative people with mental illness issues. In studying this, what I've noted is that there's something that I call a shared vulnerability model. That is, there are certain aspects of creativity that may be enhanced in people who do have certain types of mental illness. And the work that I've been doing has allowed me to look at these shared vulnerability factors. One of them actually is cognitive disinhibition, which we talked about earlier. Cognitive disinhibition allows you, when you're disinhibited, to be able to reach down and grab some of that 
information that exists below the level of conscious awareness and bring it up into consciousness. Now, some people are able to do that more easily than others, and it also may um, predispose you to certain types of mental illness if you can do it more easily. Through the work that I'm doing, though, I'm finding that while that is a positive for creativity, there are ways that you can do it without having greater vulnerability to mental illness. So this is one of the things that we're learning today that can help us to increase our creativity without worrying about this genetic component. Here's some of the things you can do to increase cognitive disinhibition. Try to do your creative work immediately after exercise. Try to do it immediately after waking from a nap or from sleep. Some people like to have a drink of alcohol, but I say, don't do that. That is cognitively disinhibiting, but then you will learn to connect doing creative work with drinking, and we don't want to make that association in the brain. Right. Having a hot shower is a great place to come up with creative ideas. Taking a long walk in nature, because natural surroundings naturally disinhibit the brain. I once asked a question, which one are you, bed, bath, or bus? And um, obviously that had innuendo implied, but the real crux of the question was, where do you prefer to have your ideas? Like in bed, say when you've just woken up in the morning, in the bath, say standing in the shower with the constant, the, the, the white noise of the shower allows to block your conscious thought and then travel. So sitting in a car when your mind starts to wander or, as you say, going out for a walk in nature. So I, little did I know at the time that I was, I was getting at. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so there you are. You are the natural scientist. <laughs> I actually, I can't claim that. I think I, I read, I don't know. I don't know where it came from, but it was a good question and it certainly elicited some laughter. But I, th <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think that the, you know, for people listening here is that there is a correlation between creativity and mental illness, but it, you know, it, it, if you do start to work on enhancing your creativity, that does not at all mean that's where you're going to end up. I think the key takeaway here is learning about cognitive disinhibition, which we've talked about, and being able to allow the treasures we talked about when you talked about the diver from the back of your mind come to the surface to make the most of all your unique makeup of knowledge, memories, beliefs, experiences that you have in your mind that you can use to make unique associations that no one else can. I agree with you thoroughly. So please don't worry about your genetic makeup. You have a creative brain. And I think that is a wonderful, I, I mean, it goes right back to the title of your book. I think there's no better place to, to stop than on the ending there is that if people take nothing else away from this, this conversation, they have a creative brain, which I think in today's modern world where we have so many challenges, knowing that you have the capability to have an idea 
or can contribute an idea to any of one of those is a is a powerful thought to have. And not only do you have a creative brain, but as you say, your brain is unique and you do have a creative idea to contribute and we need your contribution. Okay, great. Well, Shelley, it's been so wonderful spending this time with you today on the podcast. It's not every day that you get to speak to the, your guru in, on the topic of your passion. And I'm so grateful for you spending time with us all today. And I hope that people go away from this conversation and start to practice a more creative lifestyle. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you, Sam. Thank you so much, Shelley. Thank you for listening to the Natural Born Thinkers podcast. More information about today's guest and any of the resources shared during the conversation can be found in the podcast show notes. To find out more about Natural Born Thinkers, please visit the Natural Born Thinkers website and follow us on Instagram at Natural Born Thinkers. Today's show was produced by Force 9 Audio and podcast graphics were designed by Carl Gamble. Natural Born Thinkers is at the beginning of its journey and thank you for joining us on this adventure. Until the next time.